Welcome to Alessia's Divine Comedy, a journey through Dante's masterpiece, a read-along podcast hosted by me, Alessia Cesana Harris. Episode 54, Purgatorio, Canto Ventesimo, The Fifth Day, Morning. This is the second of three canti dedicated to the subject of the fifth terrace, which is greed. Dante is as unsatisfied as me with the exchange he had with Pope Adrian V, but he has to let it go. Dante is moved by the sight of the penitents and curses the she-wolf, making us aware that he knew full well the meaning of the beasts he faced five days prior. Still, while they walked, he could hear the penitents bring up examples of liberality. One, of course, was once again the Blessed Virgin Mary, here praised for giving birth to Jesus in a manger. Then someone mentions Fabrizio Lucinio for choosing to be poor and virtuous rather than rich and vicious. Dante was very interested in the penitent mentioning this person, who was a Roman patrician, held as an example of austerity that Dante himself had mentioned in his Demonarchia and Virgil in his Aeneid. The same penitent goes on to praise St. Nicholas for his treatment of three young girls to whom he reputedly gave his inheritance at Justrauri so that they could marry respectively and avoid the consequences of a life in poverty, which you can probably guess. Dante asks the penitent their name, since they are the only one who is renewing such worthy praise, and promises them that their acquaintance will not be without recompense once he returns to his life. Uh, Dante's list of mass intentions is approaching the length of my arm. Anyway, the man responds, so, and they will not answer him because of the promise of Dante's prayers, but because of much grace he has while still alive. He tells us that he is the first of the Capetian dynasty, and as such the root of the evil plant that had obscure Christendom. Hugh tells us his story, how he was the son of a butcher, which I believe he actually wasn't, and then, when the crown was vacant, it went to his son, and so the new dynasty was started. He then recounts the events that came about at the hand of his descendants, some of which we already know. He will also prophesize some events that will be contemporary to Dante, including the demise of the Order of the Templars, which happened just the year before Dante began writing the poem. One of the most interesting aspects is the charge against Philip the Fair for the death of Boniface VIII whom we know full well was not Dante's favourite person. Again, we see Dante's filial obedience to Mother Church in action. While he may despise the man, he respects the office, and what the king has done to the man is, by virtue of the office, an attack on the office and therefore the church and as such on Christ himself. This passage contains a lot of historical facts in quick succession, and if I just repeated them, I'd better be off like reading the poem, out loud instead of just talking about it. But one of the events mentioned will be the role of the French in the victory of the Black Wealths, which led to Dante exile. So I think that's a more likely explanation as to why the enmity than Professor Barolini's idea that Dante was jealous that the Capetians had created a united France. While it's true that Dante's ideal government was a temporal version of the universal authority of the Church in a single empire under one crown, I don't think Dante was as much in favour of the nation-state as his 19th century readers were. 
I think France's involvement in the affairs of the Italian states was a more pressing concern for him than the fact they were divided and France was united. Either way, Hugh Capet invokes God's wrath on his descendants, but we aren't sure what Dante means with the vengeance. Some suggested some events in his lifetime or death of Philip, but I think it's possible Dante walked the dangerous line about not wishing hell on people since, after all, he wrote a fair few people in it already. Maybe I'm wrong, but it's an interesting thing for someone supposedly purifying themselves from an attachment to still have such feelings. I fear that you may have spent a fair bit of time on that terrace as a result. One of the interesting things about this passage is who and what we get told in the poem itself and what we infer from the context. It seems to me, but perhaps I'm wrong, that the worse the sin, the least is said about the person. Like we are talking about Lord Voldemort in Harry Potter. Then Hugh explains to us that the souls are invoking the examples of liberality by day and will number those of punished greed by night. The examples are Pygmalion, who betrayed and killed his brother-in-law for gold, and as a matter of fact never got it. King Midas, whose life was ruined by the gift of turning everything into gold as soon as he touched it, so he could either neither eat or drink. Achen, who stole the treasure of the Israelites following the Battle of Jericho, as story told in the 7th chapter of the book of Joshua. The couple of Jews who, in the chapter, uh, f- uh, f- fifth chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, sold their land to support the church, but kept some money for themselves. But St. Peter knew, and they died before him. Heliodorus, who try- died trying to take the treasures of the temple in Jerusalem, in the second book of the Maccabees. Polymnester, who murdered Polydorus for the gold of Troy, and lastly Licinius Crassus, who was one of the triumviri with Julius Caesar, who apparently had gold poured into his mouth by the Parthian king, who has his decapitated head after his death, and it's so infamous that there is a Latin idiom about it. Anyway, Dante is satisfied with the exchange this time, and the two travellers keep going when they feel the earth shake. It's a terrible earthquake. The souls reacted to it by shouting glory to God in the highest and then going back to what they were doing as soon as the earth stopped shaking. Dante, of course, wants to know what it's all about, but he is scared to ask Virgil who, as always, is busy hurrying along. So we get to the end of the canto knowing he still has doubts about the whole thing. And given we still have some more to talk about greed in tomorrow's episode, I'll end it here. And if anything else comes to my mind, I'll add it to the next episode. I'm sorry it's a bit shorter than usual, but we do what we can. Bye! Thank you for listening to today's episode of Alessia's Divine Comedy. A journey through Dante's masterpiece. Thank you also to Alexander Nakarada for the music, which is one for ten or adds if it was not meant as a Roman numeral, and is available in the public domain. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Alessia underscore Sheik or on my blog www.sheikandcatholic.com.